Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Good morning. So great to be here worshiping with all of you today. I brought a picture with me of Haley's Comet. This is a picture from 1986. Uh, and as cool as it looks, looks cool, uh, it created quite a panic, okay, uh, when it was reported that cyanogen, uh, a deadly poison, was in the comet's tail, and some astronomers believed that the cyanogen would then impregnate the atmosphere and possibly snuff out all life on the planet. Could cause some concern, right? Well, we turn the page from 1999 to the year 2000, and the stars and the planets were aligning, literally, okay? Uh, when the moon, the Mars, Mercury, Venus, Jupiter, Saturn, they were all occupying the same region in space. And so this alone caused some people to panic and think, oh my, the end is near. Uh, but then you coupled this with the Y2K bug, right? Many of you remember this when this happened, the idea that our computer codes weren't able to begin making this uh, transition into the new millennium, and I mean, we are talking about mass hysteria. Uh, people were having checklists, they were stockpiling supplies, there were emergency bunkers built, no joke, all of which costing the U.S. Uh, over $100 billion. Well, then in, in 2014 and 2015, the, the focus shifted to what we call blood moons. You probably remember this as well. It actually what that is, what you're looking at in that picture, is a total lunar eclipse. Uh, this is what makes the, the moon appear to be red in color. And it was a pretty big deal because there was actually going to be a series of four consecutive blood moons over this period, and each of them seemed to coincide with a Jewish holiday. Uh, so therefore, these blood moons, these Four blood moons were seen to signify a significant end times event. Uh, most recently, in 2017, we, we witnessed the opposite of a, a total lunar eclipse with a total solar eclipse. Uh, this is what happens when the moon gets in between Earth and the sun, and therefore the sun ends up just casting the moon's shadow onto the Earth. And we haven't seen anything like this in 99 years. And it just so happened to take place in the middle of the day, essentially turning the daytime into nighttime. And while people weren't necessarily anticipating the end of the world because of this, uh, it was certainly arresting, right? I mean, it caused people to stop whatever they were doing and take notice of this. Because normally these things are so predictable, right? They're, they're dependable. We, we actually... You know, we count our seasons by these events. We number our days in the calendar by these things. And so when something different happens, uh, when it deviates from the norm and the expected, that's fascinating. 
It, it gets your attention. It, it, it's impressive. But also, as we have seen, it can be quite alarming. And I mention all of this because as we continue looking at our passage today, Jesus continues his prophecy, and he is going to use some very strong, very strange language. And a lot of ink has been spilt. Many, many books have been written trying to interpret the words of Jesus here. I mean, is he describing something that is going to happen in his future, and it is still yet to take place, so it's in our future as well? Or is Jesus describing something that is going to happen in his future, actually did happen, and so it's in our past? Or is Jesus doing both of these things? Is he talking about both of these things where it's something that is per particularly fulfilled uh, or partially fulfilled in Jesus' time and in his day and in our past, but yet there's aspects of what he's talking about that have still yet to take place. Is, is this clear as mud? Everybody with me here? I thought so. So I just want to take a moment to say that whether you believe that Jesus' prophecy has already been completely fulfilled, that it is yet to be fulfilled, or there is maybe kind of a double fulfillment, and some of it is past and some of it is future, uh, all these things are secondary issues. And I'm not saying that they're not important. I'm not saying that we shouldn't take them seriously and study them diligently. I just mean that they are not central to our salvation. Okay? So, there is room for discussion here. There is room for disagreement here. And you have to understand that there are Jesus-loving, faithful, spirit-filled, Bible-believing people in all of these camps, in all these schools of thoughts, and probably even in the same church right now. So we can discuss them, we can even disagree on them, but it should not divide us, okay? So my goal here is to present these to you, uh, some different points of view, probably than what you're used to seeing and, and maybe what you hold, but so that ultimately you are, uh, you can come and formulate your own opinions about this, okay? Fair enough? All right, if you haven't already, would you please join me in your Bibles or your Bible apps to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. While you turn there, I will just, uh, I'll give you a little bit of context, help you understand where we are in this story. Because Jesus and his disciples are now heading up uh, a mountain. They're heading up the Mount of Olives. And this, when they're up there, there is just a magnificent view of the temple. They're looking down on this, and his disciples draw his attention, saying, look how beautiful this is. And Jesus says, yeah, but it's all going to be destroyed. In fact, not one stone is going to be left upon another. So naturally, after Jesus drops this bomb on them, they have questions. Specifically, two questions. They ask him, when is this going to happen? And what is the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so Jesus begins preparing his followers for, for what is about to come. And he begins with a word of caution to them, uh, saying that many false teachers and prophets are going to come in my name, but do not be led astray. He says that terrible things are going to take place, that, that nation will rise against nation, there will be wars, famines, and earthquakes, and, and that suffering is going to come, but despite all of this, do not despair, do not lose hope, because it's all a part of God's sovereign plan, 
which is all leading up to the event that Jesus refers to as the abomination of desolation. And last week, we saw that this did come to pass uh, with the desecration and the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Now, before we move into our passage today, I just want to point out how unfathomable that event was. Remember that in the Jewish mind, Jerusalem is the holy city. But why is it the holy city? Because that's where the temple was. And even more than that, because inside the temple is the holy of holies, and that is where the very presence of God is. God amongst his people. And so Jesus says that all of that is going away. It's all going to be destroyed. So there's not going to be a temple. There is no holy of holies. There is no place to sacrifice animals to the Lord, which means that we are talking about the entire Old Testament way of relating to God gone, obliterated, which is why Jesus says in verse 21 that this will be a tribulation like the world has never seen before and will never see again. Now, that is the seriousness. That is the weight of what Jesus is describing in the destruction of the temple, where in a powerful and very public way, Israel is going to be judged. And so that's our first point that we want to look at today. Israel is judged. Uh, let's read this entire passage together, starting in verse 29. It says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds one, uh, from one end of heaven to the other." From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as the branch becomes tender and puts its, out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Now, some people read this, and immediately begin thinking about the end of the world. They would say that Jesus is talking about uh, here something that is in the future, right? That, that it correlates to the great tribulation and the 70th week of Daniel, as well as the seven bold judgments that are poured out in the book of Revelation to reveal God's final judgment at the end of the world when Christ returns. And therefore, none of this prophecy has actually been fulfilled yet. It will all take place in the future. Not so fast. Because someone else might read this and think, well, Jesus is providing a sort of uh, a telescoping prophecy here, right? This is something that is referring to the entire interadvental period. That is, that it is describing the state of the world from the time that Jesus leaves it at the ascension until he returns again. And that all of this is what Jesus describes as the birth pains, right? That, these, that the evil will just snowball and it'll be cyclical again and again until finally the Christ returns at the end of the world. And so in this case, 
some of Jesus' prophecy has already been fulfilled in the destruction of the temple, but then some of this is yet to take place. Because obviously, the sun, the moon, and the stars are completely operational. Right? So they have a literal interpretation here. They did not cease to function as the prophecy says that they would. Okay, well, this sounds reasonable. Let's talk about this. Not so fast. <laughs> Let's consider some other things that might be going on here. Remember, Jesus is a Jew. Matthew is a Jew. And he is writing this gospel account specifically with the Jewish audience in mind. And because of this, Matthew's gospel reads entirely differently from the rest. Because there are a lot of Old Testament references. And last week we looked at how some of Jesus' vocabulary in this passage and in the imagery that he uses comes from the Old Testament, right? In fact, Jesus says specifically in verse 15, let the reader understand. That is, let the reader of the Old Testament understand, and specifically the book of Daniel. Let them understand these things. And when we look back at some of the Old Testament prophets, we see them use this same kind of language. So, for instance, Jeremiah 4, 23 through 28, uh, uses this kind of image, uh, language to, to talk about divine judgment that is going to come on Israel. Verse 27 says, For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be a desolation, yet I will not make a full end. Verse 28, For this the earth shall mourn, and the heavens above will be dark. Isaiah 13, verse 10. Isaiah uses the, almost the exact same language again to talk about divine judgment, not even on Israel this time, but upon the Babylonian Empire. He says, For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. And then in verse 13 of the same chapter, Isaiah says, Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble, and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. And so, if this kind of language can be used in a metaphorical sense or an illustrative sense there in these Old Testament passages, then it is perfectly reasonable to believe that it is here in Matthew as well that Jesus is actually quoting these words from the Old Testament just like he did when he mentions the abomination of desolation in order to bring to mind certain images of the Lord's wrath and judgment that was going to come. And we still kind of do this thing today. We, we use it maybe tongue-in-cheek, but we might say something like, we received some earth-shattering news today. We might say that something happened that really rocked my world. It flipped my world upside down. Now, when we use language of global proportions like that, what are we doing? We, we're just trying to describe how drastic, how serious a situation might be. And so Jesus could certainly be doing this in this passage as well. That he is describing the destruction of the temple with cataclysmic Old Testament imagery. In order to emphasize what? The seriousness of this calamity of Israel being destroyed and being judged. And so, if that's true, then this prophecy has already been completely fulfilled in the lifetime of Jesus' followers, just as he says that it would in verse 34 when he says, Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
And for this reason, I, I, I tend to lean towards this interpretation that, that everything up until verse 35 in our passage is Jesus answering the disciples' question about the destruction of the temple. Right? And it's not until we get down to verse 36 that Jesus makes a shift and he begins talking about his second coming. We all believe this, by the way. Christians all believe that our Lord is going to return, that he is going to come and collect the bride of Christ. We're all looking forward to and anticipating a physical return of Christ. It's just where is Jesus making this shift in the passage that we're looking at? And in any case, no matter what interpretation you find yourself holding, there's no denying that Israel is judged here. Because why? These are the people of God. They were the descendants of Abraham. They, they were the recipients of God's promises. They, they were entrusted with the sacred scriptures. They were given proper instruction in, in how to worship the Lord. They, they had a temple where the very presence of God was. They had all these advantages when it came to understanding who God is and what his purposes for redemption were in this world. And yet, despite all that God had done for them, Israel became infected with arrogance and greed and pride and lust and their hearts grew cold and their lives were plagued by hypocrisy they actually began treating their sin casually thinking oh it's okay if, if i just come to the temple if i just participate in the religious activities that it would be enough they began to think that because they were the people of god that they were beyond god's judgment We wouldn't fall into that trap today, would we? The truth is, this temptation remains the same. If we are not careful, we can fall into the same traps of hypocrisy, immorality, selfishness, pride, every, everything that they did, and we are supposed to fight against those things. We are supposed to use the Spirit of God in us to fight against sin. And the trials and temptations in our lives are supposed to purify us. They are supposed to sanctify the bride of Christ, making us more and more like Christ. The fires of this world are supposed to forge us, to make us stronger. And so let's humble ourselves. Let's sit under this. Let's humble ourselves before the Lord. Let's examine our hearts and our minds. Let's ask him to search us and know us and reveal any of the areas that might be in our lives where we are prone to wander where it is easy for us to be led astray. And let's continue to stand amazed at, at the holiness and the righteousness of God who delivers justice against all wickedness. Now, if you look back at verse 30 with me, uh, this is probably where you might want to push back a little bit. Let's read this. Matthew 24, 30 says, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And again, some of you want to stand up and say, come on, man. Uh, this is very clearly referencing Jesus' second coming. You can't get around this. Well, let's take a little closer look, because once again, Jesus' language is absolutely loaded loaded with scriptural significance. And maybe this will help some of you uh, see why our interpretation of Daniel's prophecy is so important to helping us understand what Jesus is saying here. So let's look at that. This is Daniel chapter 7, 
verses 13 through 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, in this vision that Daniel has, Daniel speaks of one who is referred to as the Son of Man, who is coming to heaven, riding on the clouds, and he is then presented before the Ancient of Days, which is a reference to God. And then the Ancient of Days bestows to the Son of Man all glory, honor, and rulership forever. This is like a, a coronation ceremony, right? This is like when a king receives his crown and a scepter, except it's not happening on, on an earthly kingdom, a, a temporary kingdom. This is the king of heaven and earth being entrusted with an eternal kingdom. But did you notice the direction of the coming in that passage? It's not a coming from heaven. It is a coming towards heaven, to the Ancient of Days. And so this vision, this prophecy of Daniel, uh, is not a prophecy of the second coming of Jesus from heaven to earth. Instead, it is a prophecy of Christ's ascension. Right? It is the moment when he ascends to the right hand of God the Father where he is given power and authority over all things. And so Jesus uses the vocabulary of Daniel's prophecy to describe what is taking place in heaven when the temple is destroyed on earth. That Israel is judged and that Jesus is enthroned. And so that's our second point. Jesus is enthroned. Now, why is Jesus linking these two events? Why does he put together the destruction of the temple and his ascension and enthronement in heaven? Because by this event of cataclysmic proportions, God is visibly communicating to the world that the old way of doing things, the old covenant was done. It is over with, and a new covenant has come. Now, Hebrews chapter 8 describes it like this. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. That is exactly what is being described in our passage today. The temple is literally going to vanish. The old covenant could no longer be practiced the way that God had originally prescribed it. Now, why is this important? Because we know that many first century Christians were tempted to go back. They were tempted to return to the old ways of living, to return to the old covenant, because the temple's still there. It's still doing its thing. It was beautiful. They, they had spent so much of their time there dedicating themselves to God, trying to learn about God and worship there. And so it was comfortable for them. There was a sense of familiarity there. And so it was enticing to return to the old way of doing things. And God says, no. I will not have it because before, God's holy presence was always kept at a distance, separate from God's people in the Holy of Holies. They required a priest to make 
uh, animal sacrifices again and again on their behalf because it was only a temporary covering of their sins. But now, now the Son of God has come. Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ has come and he has given his life as the once and for all sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice for all of God's people. And the veil that was separating God's presence from his people has been torn in two. The outside God has now come to live inside the believer. Woo! Hallelujah. That is what we have in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The one who is a better temple. The one who is a better prophet, priest, and king, and who ushers in a far better covenant for his people. Listen, the destruction of the temple was the final exclamation point of Christ's work. And in its place, Jesus is enthroned as King of kings and Lord of lords, and his redeemed people is no longer restricted to the ethnic Israel. Right? Instead, these people will come to him from all over the world. And so that's our third point, that the gospel is global. It's global. Let's read uh, Matthew 24, 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from where? From the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Okay, well, here we are again. One group of people will see this as a very clear reference to the rapture, right? The event at the end of the world when Christ returns and when Jesus calls home his bride, the church. Some will say, well, not exactly, because this is a reference to Jesus when he is establishing his millennial reign. And so it takes place after the church age when God is once again dealing with the people of Israel. And this is him regathering the Jews that have been dispersed across the world and taking them back to the land of Israel, where they will live for a literal thousand years in Christ's millennial kingdom. But I think if we look at the context, what is being emphasized is that the Son of Man's mission goes global. Right? Once again, it is no longer uh, restricted to Jerusalem and this activity within the temple that is going to be the primary focus of God's activity here on earth. Instead, the Son of Man sends his angels to gather the elect from around the world. And we know that the word angel, it just means messenger. They're the same thing. It's translated either way. And universally, when we think of angel, I, I know it's easy for us to, to think of you know, these heavenly, uh, maybe ghost-like beings with wings and a harp, whatever, whatever comes to your mind. But universally throughout Scripture, it is translated both ways for both heavenly beings as well as human messengers. And so this emphasis is, is only that whoever is the angel is someone who is a messenger for the Lord, someone who is sent to minister to God's people. And for this reason, I believe that this is a reference to our mission as the church, to take the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ all across the globe. And this also seems to fit in with the imagery of, of blowing a trumpet here. Uh, in this case, it is the preaching of the gospel that would be equated to the blowing of the trumpet. 
which makes sense, right? Because the trumpet is a great instrument for what? Catching people's attention, for getting a hold of them. In fact, it was often used to call people's attention before a royal decree was made or before the presence or arrival of a king in a certain place. And that in many ways is what we are doing when we share the gospel, when we share the message of Jesus Christ. Now, whether or not you agree with this interpretation or not, the end result is the same. We're all in the same camp. God's people are going to come from all across the world. We are sent ones. You know, it's so often that we will acknowledge that God is a sending God. In that, he, God the Father sent his son into the world. But you understand that this is so much a part of who God is, you don't even have to wait until you get to the Old Testament or the New Testament. You don't have to wait until you get to the Gospels to see God sending, sending forth his nature. Now, right from the very beginning in Genesis, it says God created the heavens and the earth. And how did he do this? How is it that God uh, created order out of the chaos of the cosmos? He sends forth his word. And what does his word do? His word goes forth, sent from him, in order to create the universe and everything in it. And that is what makes the incarnation so unbelievable, right? But this thing that we read about uh, at the beginning of John's gospel, that God sent that word to become flesh and actually dwell amongst us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes, he accomplishes the mission of salvation for God's people, and then what does he do? Having atoned for our sin, having redeemed us as the people of God, making us holy and set apart for God's use, Jesus sends the Spirit of God to live inside of us. And he says, John 20, 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am also sending you. If we look at Matthew's gospel, the final words of Matthew's gospel say this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of what? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And yet, there are billions of people on this planet who will be born, live, and die without ever having had a chance to hear the name of Jesus, let alone the gospel message. And our king has specifically sent us to go to those very places to make the love of God known where it is not yet known. And make no mistake, every Christ follower is called to engage in this mission in some way. The question is, how is God calling you to participate? What role will you play in this? One of the ways you can participate in this mission is just to pray. To pray for these things, to engage purposefully in praying for these areas of the world that have not yet been reached by the gospel. And for all my prayer warriors out there, I want to share a wonderful resource you can use. It's called Operation World. Uh, And the tagline for this organization is a definitive prayer guide for every nation. And so if you go to operationworld.org or you download their app, it provides information about every people group on the planet, 
It shares about their culture, uh, their religious makeup, uh, how much or how little impact the gospel has had in that area. And so it's a really valuable tool to help you focus and concentrate your prayers. But another way that we can take part in this mission is to give. To give in order to send. And, And we recognize not everyone is called to pick up and go to the mission field. Uh, That is a very special calling, but for those who are called to leave their home and actually travel across the world to these unreached peoples, these cross-cultural missionaries need prayers, but they also need finance partners in order to help them carry out this mission that they are called to. And, And you should know that when you give to Woodside, some of that money is going towards funding these global missions all across the world, in in Burma, in Rome, the Ukraine, India, Liberia, of course, Thailand. But still, with all that being said, let us not forget that while the gospel is readily available, it, it is readily accessible here, there are people who are slaves to sin. They are spiritually dead, and they're all around us right here in Michigan. Church, we are the angels. We are the messengers of God. We are sent as representatives of Christ, as heralds of King Jesus to this world. Why? To alert everyone everywhere to the universal reign and rule of God through Christ. And then finally, Jesus ends this section of the discourse with some words of encouragement. Uh, Let's read this, picking up at verse 32. It says, From the fig tree, learn this lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So everything that Jesus has said up until this point has been an answer to the disciples' first question in verse 3. When are these things going to happen? When will the temple be destroyed? And as a bookend to this section, Jesus says, most likely as he's referencing one of the, the olive trees, that is, their fig trees that is growing on the Mount of Olives where they're sitting, that just as a branch becomes tender, and puts out its leaves so that you can know that the summer season is near. So also, I'm telling you that when you see all the things that I've told you about, you can know that the end of the temple is near. The old covenant age is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And and here it is, verse 35. Heaven and earth will will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So we can trust Jesus' words. We can rely on Jesus' unchanging word. Friends, that is so encouraging for us today. Jesus has made some absolutely incredible prediction about what is going to take place and the implications of all of this, that the entire Old Testament way of relating to God will be gone. We're talking earth-shaking, earth-shattering news, the kind of cataclysmic changes that is going to turn their world upside down. And you can imagine how his followers begin to feel when they hear this stuff, right? Their bodies tense up. 
fear begins to set in. Their hearts are racing. Maybe they get sick to their stomachs. And so Jesus inserts this comment, maybe to bring a smile to their face, to to put them at ease and remind them that despite everything he has predicted, that they can trust in the sovereignty of God. They can rely on Jesus' unchanging word. And this is so important for us because most of us have faced the most difficult year of our lives, mentally, physically, and spiritually. For many of us, it has left us absolutely gassed. We have nothing left in our tanks. We feel so overwhelmed, so utterly exhausted. And for many, it has been a time when we just want to throw our hands up and say, what now? I mean, what else? What's next? And the truth is we don't know. We, we don't know every little detail. We don't know th- how our circumstances might change from one day to the next. It is uncertain. But there is one thing that is absolutely, without doubt, certain, and it is God's word. We can stand on the firm foundation of God's word. While everything around us seems to be sinking, it is an anchor for our soul to keep us from drifting away in the storms of our lives. We can absolutely rely on the unchanging words of Christ. So let's cling to it. Let's Look to Jesus, the risen Christ, enthroned in glory, our Lord and Savior, and let's listen to him. Let's have confidence as we move boldly into the uncertain, the unknown future that lies ahead. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the gift of your word today. What an incredible reminder of the new covenant that you have made with us through your son, Jesus. It is a reminder that even though we are fallen, sinful people who are completely unfaithful to you, that you continue to remain completely and utterly faithful to us. And so God, we thank you for these encouraging words. We thank you that Jesus uh, offered these words to his disciples as they were about to face the most difficult time of their lives because, Father, I know that there are people here today who who may be scared, who may be fearful of the unknown. There are people here who are tired, they are run down, and they are exhausted from fighting in the spiritual battle. So, Father, pour out your spirit on us, we pray. May we feel your grace and your mercy and forgiveness afresh and anew. Refresh our souls today. May these words minister to us. May they offer us encouragement to continue to persevere through the trials and tribulations of this world as they come and to give you all glory and honor and praise through it all through whatever comes our way, and as we stand strong and commit to sharing the good news of the gospel with the lost souls of this world as representatives of Christ, Father, may we do that well. May we be good stewards of those opportunities as you are so faithful to present them before us for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit we pray these things today. 
Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.